0: My name is Kelsey Matson, and I'm a PhD student at Montana State University um, in history, of course. And my interests are in environmental and technological history. And so today I'm going to uh, be talking a little bit about the process of, about electricity kind of generally but then specifically about the process of electrification in early Yellowstone, in the pre PS period. So Lieutenant Hiram Martin Chittenden of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who had recently spent a tour of duty in Yellowstone National Park, remarked in 1895 that in the park, air is at its best, quote, full of life and energy. Chittenden's reflection is part of an expansive intellectual tradition correlating life, energy, and the ambient environment. Electricity has long been associated with vitality and life in the modern Western mind. And the vitalist scientists of the 18th and 19th centuries believed that living beings possessed the spark of life, an animating force that elevated them above mere lifeless matter. So um, 19th century American transcendentalists poetically took this appreciation for the spark of life out of the laboratory and put it into the wild landscape. So Walt Whitman reflected on this idea in a piece composed for Leaves of Grass. This is Icing the Body Electric. So titled for the 1867 edition of Leaves of Grass, um, Icing the Body Electric explores the physicality and spirituality of the human body at length. Um, praising it for its sacred and generative qualities. Throughout, Whitman structures his uh, musings and reflections around the uh, conceit or the metaphor of electricity. So it's electricity that both figuratively and literally brings life, and it's the charge of the soul um, that is humanity's electrical transmission line to the divine. So reverence for the electric Um, and the energetic extended beyond the human body to the broader landscape as well. So, as Chittenden's observation um, that I began with indicates, uh, Yellowstone National Park's sense of place has long been defined and interpreted by its energetic landscape. So, um, Yellowstone is most often sort of associated with geothermal energy, right? It's a caldera, it's got all these geysers and hot springs. It's also, you know, there's all of these other kinds of, of energy in this environment. There is, you know, surging rivers and wildfires and even atmospheric electrical phenomena like lightning. So it's this dynamic sort of energetic environment. And so during this early pre-NPS period, Yellowstone was this very contested landscape for scientists, railroad companies, tourists, um, and the army who was administering it for uh, much of this time. And each of these groups, each of these parties interpreted and um, sought to use its energetic landscape differently. So although it has historically been and continues to be uh, widely held as one of the most sort of potent symbols of wilderness preservation in American history, um, the history of Yellowstone National Park is actually really inextricably linked to the history of electrical science and technology in the United States. So I want to start out then um, by taking us kind of back to a time before Yellowstone was a national park. So... um, in 1872, um, uh, the federal government, um, they really needed more data. Before they could um, consent or condone to protecting the Yellowstone region, they needed more data. So they sent out the Hayden Expedition. Um, and this fellow, Henry Gannett, was a chief geographer of the Hayden Expedition. He was responsible for collecting Meteorological, astronomical, and hypsometric data. And so um, on July 26, 1872, um, he and his team were surveying a prominent mountain peak um, as an afternoon thunder shower approached. Um, and I want to read for you uh, his account of this experience. A thunder shower was approaching as we neared the summit of the mountain. I was above the others of the party, and when, about 50 feet below the summit, the electric current began to pass through my body. At first, I felt nothing but heard a crackling noise, similar to a rapid discharge of sparks from a friction machine. Immediately after, I began to feel a tingling or pricking sensation in my head and the ends of my fingers, which, as well as the noise, increased rapidly until I reached the top. Um, Until, when I reached the top, the noise, which had not changed its character, was deafening, Um, and my hair stood completely unend, while the tingling, pricking sensation was absolutely painful. Taking my hat off partially relieved it. I started down again and met the others 25 or 30 feet below the summit. They were affected similarly, but in a less degree. One of them attempted to go to the top, but had proceeded but a few feet when he received quite a shock, which felled him as if he had stumbled. We then returned down the mountain about 300 feet, and to this point, we still heard and felt the electricity. So, for those of you who haven't. Um, you know, put it together yet? This was Electric Peak. Um, they named the um, they named the mountain after this experience, Electric Peak in um, what was then Southern uh, Montana Territory and is now uh, Southern Montana State. Um, so later tourists and adventurers described similar phenomena on the mountain. So uh, Burton Holmes, who was a noted traveler and photographer in the early 19th century compared Electric Peak to a huge Leiden jar or a sort of giant storage battery. Um, So early critics interpreted Yellowstone Park not only as a sort of naturalistic place um, and full of these timeless kind of wilderness vignettes, but it was also this sort of giant laboratory where the principles of physics started to warp, um, and lightning was mentioned in um, a lot of other early traveler accounts, not just on Elective Peak, but throughout. Um, Nathaniel Pitt Langford of the 1870 Washburn expedition remembered, terrific tempests with all the incidental accompaniments of thunder and lightning afford the most awe-inspiring exhibitions in nature. us to um, the technological component of my talk. So um, given, right, in 1883, I should say, um, Yellowstone transferred from the auspices of the Department of the Interior, which had sort of mismanaged the park, to the uh, Department of War. Um, which was was better resourced, um, and the bill that changed uh, that transferred this um, specifically uh, made a distinction between the infrastructural improvements um, of suit what it call suitable roads and bridges, which the War Department was responsible, the Army was responsible for uh, creating and the hotels and necessary outbuildings, um, which uh, were uh, to be um, developed for for tourist amenities. So this is an important point then, is that there are two entities responsible for two different aspects of the park. Um, The tourist uh, development who managed hotels, the concessioners, and the army who managed kind of everything else Uh, infrastructurally. So this then begs the question, given that the Yellowstone landscape was so dynamic and intrinsically energetic, how were these two entities informed by their environmental context in their efforts to modernize and develop the park uh, by bringing electricity into it and electrifying it? And I argue that their response differs in three uh, distinct ways, in terms of the architecture that they use, in terms of their use of space, and those two kind of overlap somewhat, Um, and then uh, in terms of the actual energy sources that fuel um, the electrification. So the hotel concessioners were uh, the first ones to bring electricity to the park by a long shot. Um, so in 1883, the Mammoth Hotel, um, or the, the National Hotel later, the Mammoth Hotel, um, was the first structure to be lit electrically. And the Mammoth Hotel was a very sort of, its construction was a very sort of piecemeal process. Um, So it it was first electrified in 1883 and then updated in 1887. But um, in spite of its kind of piecemeal and haphazard process, it was still pretty um, remarkable. Um, If you put this in kind of a national context, right, um, Edison's uh, famed sort of Pearl Street Station, which was the first central power plant in the US. became operational in 1882 just one year earlier so but it's really important to remember that even though i'm comparing this to um, new york and edison's Pearl station um, the west was actually in many ways significantly more technologically developed than the east um, it was probably the most sort of heavily technologized part of the country the, West, generally speaking, because of its mining industries, um, which were extremely sort of technology and expertise heavy. Um, So in that way, it's really actually not that surprising that um, Yellowstone would be electrified so early. So um, the first kind of nice hotel (laughs) in Yellowstone was the Fountain, arguably, and... um, It was constructed in 1891 and it had um, you know mineral baths, steam heat, um, and electricity. Um, And as Joseph Reed there says, the wilderness is made to blossom with modern conveniences. So um, you know they piped in uh, hot water, hot mineral water from nearby White Sulphur Spring, um, but The ambient heat and the electric lighting, on the other hand, couldn't be extracted sort of directly from the local environment. Um, So what they had to do instead is turn to um, power sources, shipped in from out of uh, the park, right? Um, So they used uh, steam engines powered by um, external combustion um, engines so like they were probably powered by um, wood charcoal coal um, carted in from um, outside the area. Um, and Fountain's electrical generator system included a 35 horsepower ideal brand steam engine which supplied mechanical energy to a two electricity producing Edison DC dynamos. So you know anything about DC energy, um, it's only good for short distances, really. You can't um, transmit at long distances. So uh, these DC generators were um, very well suited to the small scale, sort of highly localized needs of the hotels. Um, Technician John Eggert, who was the generator's uh, primary engineer in 1916, Um, uh, recollected in an interview decades later that I used to shut the electric generators down about 9 in the morning and then start them up about 4 in the afternoon. This was to save on energy and personnel. And so this is important because in spite of being situated in this extremely energetic landscape, as I talked about earlier, um, you know, they were still Uh, constricted and uh, they they, uh, still remained reliant on a source of power that was non-local and demanded kind of constant uh, attention and regulation. So Fountain Hotel um, closed down in 1916. It was a victim of automobiles, which again speaks to uh, gasoline-powered automobiles, changed the sort of physical layout of um, of Yellowstone, um, this sort of external source of energy um, from gasoline-powered automobiles, changed the spatial layout. So in its place, um, Old Faithful Inn opened in 1904 and became kind of the, the premier uh, tourist destination. And Old Faithful is interesting because it's, um, it's architecturally interesting. A lot of people have written a lot of really interesting stuff on, uh, you know, the National Park Service, Rustic. Um, but it, it appeals to this culture of visuality, right? It's, it's meant to be seen. Um, and so contributing, to this culture of visuality, um, this really sort of ostentatious, exuberant um, architecture, uh, is um, the aesthetics of electricity. So electricity, then the trappings of electricity, um, become something that, um, you know, contribute to this overall um, park aesthetic. Um, So again, like Fountain Hotel, Um, it was powered electrically by, uh, an ideal engine, ideal brand steam engine, which powered a a DC Dynamo. And as I was saying, um, Robert Reamer, who, um, designed the architecture of the hotel, he personally designed the, um, the uh, copper and steel chandeliers and the candle-like light fixtures, um, electric light fixtures. Um, and then also, um, going back here, uh, the, uh, the hotel, the inn, had uh, an electric spotlight, actually, up here um, on the roof, which uh, illuminated the fountain, or the Uh, geyser at night, and also illuminated wildlife, and they shut that down um, in 1948, Um, but again it speaks to um, electricity and electric lighting um, being a really important part of the sort of visual spectacle um, that was Yellowstone and Old Faithful in. And again, if we look at the spatial arrangement of the inn, um, the the difference between uh, the the hotel proper and these sort of um, supporting outbuildings, um, you know, provides further information uh, regarding the relationship between uh, visitors and electricity in this environment. So. Um, the, the Lodges' scale, right, it's this huge, massive, probably many of you have been in it, um, it's this huge, massive facility. Well, so the scale combined with its sort of unified design here in the lobby um, gave visitors sort of the simultaneous and paradoxical um, sense of grandness, but also intimacy. Um, but this building down here was the powerhouse. And it is, as you can see, physically separate from, you know, the hotel proper because they needed to be able to cart in, you know, tons and tons of dirty fuel and, you know, to support this kind of noisy, this large noisy piece of specialized equipment that is the the electrical generator. This whole facility here is just full of paradoxes, right? They're using modern technology to augment this wilderness experience, you know, using, you know, old kind of coal-powered fuel uh, source to uh, create this new modern electrical technology to make that possible. Kind of that covers the, the concessioners um, and those those points that I made earlier about architecture space and energy. So that brings us to the Army by contrast. And so I want to situate this kind of around um, this fellow, Hiram Chittenden, who was a lieutenant in the Army Corps of Engineers, and he was chief engineer of Yellowstone from 1891. He served two tours anyway, and oversaw um, a lot of really important developments like uh, the Roosevelt Arch and Fort Yellowstone and a variety of other things. But he was very um, keyed into the concept of space and landscape and how these sort of infrastructural improvements fit within this environmental spatial context. Fort Yellowstone didn't, unlike, you know, the concessioners, which made the the shift to to electricity in the 1880s, 1890s. Fort Yellowstone um, didn't uh, make that shift until 1902. They just didn't need to. Um, They made do with kerosene lighting, oil-based lighting, and they didn't need to provide this sort of ostentatious spectacle um, that the concessioners did also I think that Chittenden was a um, a great lover of the park and I don't think he would have condoned using um, a dirty electric um, or a dirty um, coal-powered or or you know external combustion engine he commented that on the, the the possibility of an electric railroad in Yellowstone he commented that uh, the objections to such a railroad that is an electric one are much less formidable than to one operated by steam locomotives so he had this sort of um, sense it's, it's kind of an anachronistic term but he had this sense that um, electricity uh, was was cleaner than steam so again if we talk about the um, spatial layout of Fort Yellowstone. Um, I didn't. I don't think I mentioned this before, but the hotels were confined to a 10-acre um, tract of land. Uh, that was a term of their of their concessions. And but Fort Yellowstone was not confined by this structure. So it's I think about uh, 19 acres total general area. And they were able to build their uh, electrical generator once they finally installed it in 1902, you know, way off in the distance. So, again, they were not, they had much more sort of sprawling infrastructural systems to work with here. And so, Fort Yellowstone was a, uh, powered by a hydroelectric generator which uh, was installed um, about a mile uh, off to the east its primary water supply came from Glen creek which was a tributary of the gardner river and the it was uh, powered by a series of underground flumes and open aqueducts which uh, once the water fell about 200 feet or 200 part ahead, uh, met two foot ahead, it meant two four-foot Pelton water wheels attached to two 50-kilowatt 2200 volt Westinghouse AC generators. So again, we're, by contrast to the DC systems which powered the hotels, they're using hydroelectric system attached to AC dynamos. And so then... That power then gets um, piped back to uh, Fort Yellowstone, um, piped all the way back here and they also used it, they sold some to the concessioners, ironically, um, and they sold some of their extra um, electricity to uh, the Yellowstone um, Park Association to power the Mammoth Hotel in Overland Mammoth. Um, so, um, Chittenden, uh, commented on the first Fort Yellowstone powerhouse, um, saying that it's, uh, stylistic, that it, it was stylistically neat and commodious and perfectly satisfactory from a practical point of view and gives a very pleasing effect as a structure. So he was interested in the aesthetics as well, but it's, you know, it, it's, um, Comes from a very different point of motivation, and then just a, you know a brief comment on the second Fort Yellowstone powerhouse. Um, it was um, a more permanent facility. It's concrete as opposed to um, timber frame construction, um, and that was installed in 1911 um, and is still there. The first one was torn down, I believe, in the 20s. Alright In conclusion, I just want to return to those those three. Uh, points of departure between the concessioners and the army, um, architecture, um, space, and energy. So again, uh, we have um, the exuberant architecture of the concessioners versus the more um, sort of sedate um, and uh, sober architecture of the army. Um, You have a very sort of confined um, sense of space, confined and controlled sense of space, for the uh, hotels, the concessioners, versus this sort of sprawling infrastructural um, improvement or development um, of the, the army. And then um, you have the external combustion uh, source of energy for the concessioners that's brought in from, from outside uh, as compared to the um, sort of local hydroelectric energy used by the army. And so, again, in building these sort of ultra-modern, ultra-modern hotels, the uh, Northern Pacific Railroad was reinforcing the West's image of this sort of exotic hinterland uh, versus its actuality is this extremely uh, modern, technologically innovative place, you know, the most, I would argue, technologically um, innovative place in the country. And then, again, um, the army, I think, Chittenden was kind of ahead of his time in some ways by uh, thinking more um, ecologically. Um, You know, it wasn't really until the 60s in the Leopold Report that the NPS uh, started to respond to these more ecological mandates and and management policies. Um, But simultaneously, they were also aligning themselves uh, with this national trend towards these huge state-of-the-art hydroelectric power systems. This is on Niagara Falls, um, the Shoal which I believe was installed in 1904, so about the same time then. So again, this is my, I guess, my concluding point is that, in channeling their sort of respective um, power sources, the army and the concessioners were entering into this uh, national dialogue regarding electricity, the use of power in, you know, and our relationship with technology in this sort of rapidly modernizing. Um, an industrializing age um, that was the, the early 19th century. Thank you.